Gary Wordlaw is vice president of news and programming at the Black News Channel. I met him at an Illinois News Broadcasters Association conference, and I first did this interview for the INBA podcast. You have a ton of experience, and how did you first get into TV? I'll give you the cliff note version. I was washing dishes at a restaurant in my hometown of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and as a dishwasher, you were out front with customers. And every day I would engage this one particular guy in conversation about the world and all things going on back in 1968. He was a chief petty officer in the Navy, and we would argue about politics or whatever. Well, the manager of the restaurant in front of this guy said, hey, you can't talk to a customer like that. Well, this guy says, don't talk to him like that. We can talk about anything we want. Well, as it turned out, he was a recruiter for a, um, for a uh, job placement service and recommended me to the station manager when I was 16 years old to be a full-time floor manager. Thus, my career was born. Okay, but why did you want to get into TV or into media? I had no clue what TV was when I was 16 years old. There were no African-Americans in television that I knew of. And so when this guy said that uh, his friend was the station manager of a television station as a 16-year-old black kid in the South, are you kidding me? I have an opportunity to become part of this thing? Well, let me go see what it's all about. And once I got the job and, and I got bitten by the broadcasting bug, I knew that this was going to become something great. And if I had the opportunity to last long enough, to be good enough, I thought that this was something that I really wanted to do, and that was some 52 years ago. Okay, so you mentioned uh, being Black, being African-American. What was it like back then at that time? Um, it was rough. It was difficult. I was the first African-American hired at this station after the uh, shooting of Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis, and I was in Chattanooga. And so tensions were running high. Uh, there were riotings. There were looting. I mean, not looting. There was rioting, uh, protest. Uh, people were burning buildings and, you know, the first one thing or another. And um, there was a, a certain sentiment among the, the, the population that African-American people didn't have a place in this, that industry. And so I guess I was sort of a test case for this station as a kid. Uh, but I got to say, the general manager of this station was a guy by the name of Colonel Reeve Owen. And uh, Colonel Owen was one of those Southern gentleman types. I don't think he had a particular like or dislike for black folk, but he was a fair guy. And uh, he kind of shepherded my early career and made sure that I was taken care of in my job. I had to do my job, but nobody called me out of my name. Nobody made me feel unwelcome. Uh, it wasn't that way at all. Yeah, but okay. So what went back then, though? If there were all, if there were all these issues uh, back then, how did you get through it? Uh, my faith in God, my parents, and uh, a support system from the community was uh, basically it. Uh, I felt as a young person uh, that I was given an opportunity that people before me hadn't gotten. A lot of people had gone through things that I had not yet gone through. So I felt no matter how difficult it was going to be, it was uh, part of my destiny to survive. And so I didn't need a lot. I mean, I was pretty self-contained. And again, I must say that the, the folk I worked with for the most part, for the most part, if they had a particular dislike for me as an African-American person, 
they didn't make it manifest to me. Uh, when I became a reporter, it was a little different on the street. I mean, people would call you out of your name. I had my car shot at. I had my windshield broken. People spit at me. Yeah, it was pretty tough. Uh, but you know what? It was just part of the job. I still had the opportunity every night to go in and, and talk to folks about the news. And uh, that, was, uh, that was its own reward. Okay, so what was Chattanooga, other than working in a job, uh, what was Chattanooga like back then when you were growing up? Okay, I'm not from the South, so. I understand. Well, we were coming out of the early days of segregation. Uh, you could eat at lunch counters. Uh, they integrated schools the, my senior year or my junior year. Uh, so those kinds of uh, social change was taking place. Uh, there was still quite a bit of um, racial discrimination in housing and education uh, and just the general South. I mean, it, it was what it was. There was a fellow from Alabama by the name of Governor George Wallace running for president. Um, there was a strong sentiment that he was going to be able to restore America back to a time that some of the uh, non-African Americans enjoyed. And so it was, uh, it was a tough time. It was a tough time from that vantage point. But again, back in those days, we had a very strong uh, African American community. And uh, it was very, very strong. And so there was great security in knowing that you weren't going to be pushed around because you were black, because black folks weren't going to take it. And so that strong sense of community, I think also was part of my building block of being able to survive those times. If people were treated a certain way, okay, um, and then they were, they felt like they weren't treated right, how did they deal with that stress like on an individual level? Um, did they, you know, when people went home at night, okay, because like we know the news, how, how did they feel or how did they deal with it? What did they say? Well, in my household, my parents were very religious people. And so we didn't really have a lot of discussions about uh, that sort of thing. There was a strong belief system and, you know, support God. God's going to support you and take care of you. On the social level of the world around me, outside of my house, the discussion was if you were being mistreated, you would turn to the National Association for the Advancement of Covered People, the NAACP. The NAACP was very, very strong. And, uh, you know, as an organization, uh, if people felt they were being discriminated on their jobs or in the streets, well, the NAACP would come to the aid of those folks. And it was largely made up of community folks and church people and so forth. And so you always felt that from a secular standpoint, there was going to be that kind of support. Now, this is a changing time in America. You had uh, uh, Dr. King had just recently been killed. He was a strong advocate of peaceful demonstrations, nonviolence, and so forth. But then you also had the Malcolm X time coming along. You know, those folks who were Muslim were beginning to exert themselves. You had SNCC that was coming. So young people were taking to the streets differently. This was also during a time that not too long after that, you had the moratorium in Washington where people of all colors, young folks, were challenging the government, taking to the streets on uh, the uh, Vietnam and so forth. So it was a very tumultuous time in America. It was a coming of age, as it were. And so the civil rights movement was moving apace. Young people were beginning to think for themselves across the country. Uh, it was a time that uh, you had Woodstock. You had all those golden age of the 60s kind of a thing come into uh, fruition. 
And I was kind of a child of that. You know, I, I had a chance to live through it and to report on it and be a part of it and, and to see some things differently, to see the world differently. I found out that very early in life, everybody black was not necessarily your friend and everybody white was not necessarily your enemy. So the reality is, I think thinking people had to decide for themselves based on uh, one of the statements that King made, Dr. King made, and that was to judge a man by the character, the content of his character. And so that's what I kind of subscribe to. Did you ever meet him? Uh, from afar. I saw him. I couldn't get close to him, but I got to view him from afar. So what was that like? It was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, he was a small in statute man, but he was a giant for the things that he was doing. And so I thought, how can such a little fellow with such a powerful voice lead such a powerful movement? And I would imagine he was the right guy at the right time to do just that. Well, since you're, since you're from the South, when he was uh, first working down there, what were people saying? Do you remember? Well, you know, black folks held him in great esteem. Some white people's disdain the guy. So, you know, it depends on who, the, who you were talking to and what the conversation uh, was about. From a news standpoint, I worked in a newsroom that was, I was the only, obviously the only black person in there. And so when there was something to be reported on, the news director at the time was a guy by the name of Gil Norwood. Gil Norwood was a guy who subscribed strongly to being fair on the air. So if he had personal views, you didn't know it because on the air, the stories were reported straight. And I thought that was a pretty cool thing. We didn't have a lot of stories that got on black folks doing positive things back in those days. But when they were on the TV, there wasn't any obvious bias that I could detect. Yeah, so when you're talking about, um, you said there weren't many stories like that. What do you think about it now, like many years on? Do you think there are more positive stories? I think as we have grown as an industry, I think that uh, the, it goes and flows with the ebb and tide. I think that there's still far too, um, too many stories about the African-Americans as criminals. I think there are far too many stories that spotlight uh, African-American boys with their pants slung low on their hips and, and gold teeth and that sort of thing. I think there's too much of that. Uh, you, you take a city like Chicago. Yes, they had 600 murders in Chicago. But you got, what, 8 million people who live there? What about the other people, the other kids that are doing great? Where's the story on them? Where's the story on the kid who lives on the South Side that's a scholar, uh, that's, a, that's a, a, a great scholar and is being recruited by many colleges? Where are those stories? Well, that's why I am so happy to be part of the Black News Channel. It is our mission to find those stories and balance the bad stuff with the good stuff. And balance doesn't mean 50-50. Balance, balance to me means presenting uh, um, a culturally diverse broadcast that spotlights or catches the community doing right. What's been the reaction so far? It's been excellent. It's been excellent. Those people who have found us like us. Our mission is to get more people to find us. We're now carried on what's called the linear broadcast and our OTT uh, systems to over 120 million homes and devices. 120 million. 
when I spoke to you guys early on, we were looking to be at 33 million. Now it's 120 million and growing. And so we're carried on many, many of the uh, services. Uh, Direct TV came on board the, a couple of days ago. We're on Charter, we're on Spectrum, we're on Comcast, we're on many of the Amazons, the Plutos, the TV, Tiki Lives, all those things. And so the more people are seeing us and they're saying, wow, you guys truly are different. You're doing something that's different. So when you turn on the set, it's not just the color of the anchors, it's the tone of the broadcast that we're so proud of. Yeah, because I've seen it here. We get it on Comcast. Like you go to Comcast, you have to click on something, and then you can get the channel. Correct. And um, so I'm wondering, you know, how did you choose the people for the air? Um, it was really simple. I tried to get a, a broad cross of the black folk in America, age-wise, skin tone-wise, gender-wise. And that doesn't mean that everybody on the air is going to be African-American. That's not America. So even though the tone of our news is culturally specific, the tellers don't always have to be uh, black folks to be able to have a fair story. Yeah, so how people responded to that? Because I did see a reporter that was not, that was from a different background. I haven't had very much pushback. There has been some curiosity, and when it's explained to folks, they get it. And so, okay, now you're in Florida? Tallahassee. And how come the network is based there? The owner of the then owner and um, uh, CEO lives in Tallahassee, has holdings here. And so like Ted Turner wanted to be in Atlanta because he lived there. Our guy wanted to be in Tallahassee because he lived here and had holdings here. And thus we were born. And so, okay, what's Tallahassee like? I've never been there. It's the state capital of Florida. It's uh, very uh, education oriented. We've got Florida State University as uh, the predominant um, uh, ACC school. We've got uh, Florida A&M, which is a historical black college. And we've got Tallahassee Community College, which has thousands of students as well. So it's a very, it's a state government, it's education, and then it's medical. Those are the three big industries here. And um, how long have you lived there? This is my second tenure here. I was the general manager of the ABC station for about five or six years. I went back to Louisiana for a few years and uh, came back here. So I've been here now uh, two or three years. And so have you basically stayed south in your career? I have basically lived all over the country. I started in Tennessee. I left Chattanooga and took a job in, of all places, Bellingham, Washington, which is about as far in the Pacific Northwest as you can go and still be in the United States. I left Bellingham and moved to Baltimore, Maryland. I stayed there for about 10 years and left Baltimore and moved down to Washington, D.C. for another 10 years or so. I then left there and went to Syracuse, New York, which you can't get much more upstate than Syracuse, New York. I left Syracuse and moved back to Seattle, Washington. Stayed there for a while and then moved down to New Orleans. And I was in New Orleans for a while before moving to Tallahassee, back to New Orleans, Baton Rouge, and now back to Tallahassee. Yeah, so you're from the South and you lived in all these places. Um, as you kept living in different places, did that change you or how did that change you? Well, you know, you get to see a broad, a broad spectrum of America. Uh, I love this country. I love, the, I love being a Southerner. You know, this is my roots. I think that this is a great place to be. It doesn't mean that I have to agree with every attitude of, or every person. But I thank God I live in a place where people can have different attitudes and different opinions be able to express those 
And as long as I don't intrude upon you in your space and you don't intrude upon me in my space, let's have dialogue. Let's, let's talk and let's figure out who we are and move forward. That's kind of my philosophy. But when you say you're a Southerner, since I'm not a Southerner, okay, but when you say you're a Southerner, what does that mean? Well, as a child, I lived in Chattanooga. I would wake up in the morning and I would look at out at the mountains around me. I would smell the sweet smell of the, of the flowers and the trees. And I grew up being able to play outside till the, it got dark and chase fireflies with my friends and uh, fish in the uh, lakes and rivers. I'd go down to North Alabama where my grandparents lived and they were farmers. So I got to experience uh, raising animals and crops and things like that. And, and you kind of, you know, you grow up and, and that's fun. I mean, that's kind of a fun memory. I've got friends from New York City and we would sit down, we'd start talking and I'd talk about, oh yeah, man, we'd go out and pick our own tomatoes and pick some beans and do, what? No, you go to the Bodego, you don't go, no. You mean that stuff actually grows? Yeah, man, it grows. So I guess it all depends on where you come from, but these are my roots and, and I love it. I love the, I love it. I just love it. But so when, what did your grandparents, were they from the U.S., your grandparents? Oh, absolutely. My grandfather was a minister down in Alabama, one of them. My uh, mother's um, father was a, was a big time minister, Baptist minister, and sort of um, was a circuit uh, minister. So he had churches all over the place and a very religious fellow. And my father's father uh, was a farmer. And he had, <laughs> my grandmother had, I think, 15 or 16 kids that lived to be grown. And um, my mom, on the other hand, was like an only child raised by her her folks, which was kind of unusual. She had um, siblings that were half brothers and sisters, but she was kind of all by herself. And so I grew up with a big family on one side and a small family on the other side. And um, But like my grandparents lived about 40 miles apart from each other. So it was, it was cool growing up. But what did they, did they ever tell you about what it used to be when they were growing up? Again, yeah, my grandfather, who was a minister, would talk a lot about um, how difficult it was. But remember, they came up in a segregated world. And so they didn't really have a lot of interaction with white people other than business relationships. Well, since my grandfather was a minister, he was kind of a prominent person in his community. And so he probably had, a, had it better than some folks who were poor. And he wasn't, you know, he was upper middle class, even by white standards back in those days. My grandfather, who was a farmer, had a very, very large, you know, farm. And so he was able to sell his goods and products and he and his family lived uh, also sort of a, a nice life. And so when, when the older people would talk, they weren't talking about white folks. They were talking about my folk, my great grandfather, my great grandmother and you know, where they lived and what they did and that sort of thing. So I didn't hear a lot of stories about, you know, people who were uh, lynched or people who were beaten or people who were abused. It, it wasn't part of the dialogue of my family. But when you were um, working, as you've been working in TV, were you thinking in the back of your mind, I want a channel, you know, I want the kind of channel that I'm running right now? No, I grew to this. For years, I worked in, in markets and jobs where, you know, you fought for a seat at the table. You might suggest certain types of stories that would go uncovered. And so when this became uh, a reality, it, it was a natural because I've lived the life. 
And now to oversee the table, I want to make sure that that table still has opinions from folks who have diverse ideas. Uh, all black folks may be may look alike to some folks, but we don't think alike. We don't vote alike. We don't worship alike. But there is a common thread. And for the sake of argument, let's call it soul. There's a common thread that black folks share that's unexplainable. But if you're African-American, well, you know what it is. You don't have to explain it. So when you work in a news organization, you don't have to explain it, but you have to put it on television in such a way that folks can understand it. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And sorry if I haven't been posting anything here for a while, but I've been working on writing novels. And my first novel is called Wicker Park Wishes, and it will be published by Rick Camphers Publishing Company, Eckhart Press, later this year. You can sign up for the newsletter at radiogirl.us. Okay, so can you explain what it is, or is it just like a feeling? I think it's more of a feeling that a common thread that's shared I have no idea what it would feel like to be Caucasian. I've never been Caucasian. I know that I hear about white privilege that's spoken in quiet circles and in louder circles, but I don't know what that feels like because I'm not that person. But I can tell you when I walk into a department store as a 65 plus year old man and I'm followed through the store, and a 16-year-old boy of color is followed through the store, and a 65-year-old white guy is walking in the store, and a group of young white kids, and they're not followed, then you get it. It's called living in my skin for for a while. Well, you were saying when you were working in TV and they covered certain stories, why do you think they kept covering certain stories? It's easy when the television station and this is a broad rationalization, so forgive me. But television stations are generally built on land that's not the most expensive land in the community. It's generally downtown and that sort of thing, or way out in the burbs. But if it's downtown, where does the crimes normally happen? Well, they're downtown. And so it became very easy to send a crew out to get the, the murder over here or the murder over there. It was very easy to show uh, the, the poverty because you're close to it. It was more difficult to sit down and think about covering news differently. For instance, you're talking about heart disease in America. Well, in most stations, you turn to the white doctor who's an expert, but it's a little more challenging to go to an HBCU and find the black physician or the black educator who can talk just as articulately about it. And so that wasn't done. You kind of, it was an afterthought because people tend to go up to those folks they're most comfortable with. And so a lot of news got covered with, because it was comfortable to go to the folks you know. Well, that was a challenge when you're a black reporter and you wanted to put these folks in stories and you were told, no, no, go to Dr. A or go to Professor B or go to school teacher C. And you didn't have much choice in that. Now there is choice. I think it's important to seek people of color who have the broad base of experience to talk about the condition of people who look and sound like they do. 
But when you when you were um, working in these different places and you brought up these points, what did they say to you? When I was a reporter or a news director, I had, I had as a news director, I had more of an opportunity to influence that sort of thing than as a reporter. As a reporter, you take your marching orders from the assignment editor or from the executive producer or the news director or whatever, and you do what you do. When you're the news director, you sit around the table, but remember, largely the folk around the table don't look like you. So you can only push so far to get so much of it done. You can influence whether you're gonna be crime or not. Uh, when I was there, there was one of the stations in Washington, their mantra was, if it bleeds, it leads. And so their whole attitude towards the news was crime and gore. I, on the other hand, would have days where I would not allow that to be covered. Instead of reporting on the homicide, I had a policy, well, let's go get a picture of the person when he, she was alive, and let's put that picture on, and let's explain to people why this is such a tragedy or a loss. And it began to erode, I think, some of those misconceptions. You have a 16-year-old kid that's been unfortunately gunned down. Well, I don't need to see another body bag on the street or a sheet over it or yellow tape. What I need to know is if this kid was in high school, is he or she going to be missed and why? Was this kid making a contribution to his or her community? What happened that I can have a pair of shoes older than a young person who's died on the street? That's a tragedy. And I think we have an obligation to tell those stories in language that the community can understand. What if a kid um, is part of a gang? Then how would you? Uh, why, why, why is that to me important? Why, why do we have gangs? Let's do the whole socialization of why there's a gang in the first place. What got us to the gang? So we need to, to talk about that as well as why you have so much crime on the street. I think it's important not just to paint everybody with the same brush, <clears throat> excuse me, because they're there, but you need to take a look at the societal problems that got us there. I think that uh, gangs are a bad thing regardless, but there may be even worse reasons of what made the gang exist in the first place. And yes, you have to address the elephant in the room. You have to talk about the number of African-American youth that are killed by African-American youth. You gotta address that. But the last time I checked, they didn't make guns. So how do you get them? Who sells them to you? Where does that come from? What does that look like? We don't make the drugs. Where do they come from? Who's profiting from it? I mean, I think all of those stories are part of the solution. If you report it right, you can sort of help people to understand the problem and maybe work towards relieving it. Well, you have this insight now, but has, did you think differently earlier on in your career? No, I was born with this kind of wisdom. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You live life, you have different experiences. I think as you grow older, you see the world differently than when you are young and, you know, 
I love young people. I love having young people in the newsroom because they don't see the world as I do. The world that they're in is the world of today. I can give you all the experience about how we got here, but you've got to deal with COVID-19 differently than I do. You've got to deal with parenting differently than I do. I think one of the stories that we are focusing some attention on is mental health in the African-American community. It's a huge issue. But for a long time, we didn't talk about it. You talk about um, illegitimate birth rates among people. Uh, the Atlantic released a, um, uh, a story that they've done that says that um, uh, premarital sex among high school kids, that sort of thing. In the 90s, it was at 50%. Today, it's at 38%. And the largest drop is among African-American young people. Well, why is that? What's the story behind why that's happening? I don't know. I just read the report, but I'm dying to get out there and follow up on it because there's got to be something that's going on. And if something's going on like that, that's a huge, a huge juxtaposition, I think, that we need to look at. So those are the kind of stories I talk about in my newsroom. It's, it's looking for that kind of a story and then fleshing it out. You tie that story and then you go out and you start reporting on some of the mental health issues in the community. These are real, real issues. Have a town hall meeting on race. Don't just invite people who look like you to talk about it. Invite people of different backgrounds. Diversity isn't to me just the color of your skin. It's, a, it's also thought. And I think if you think about things differently in a diverse way, and you talk about that in a broadcast way, then people can actually learn something from what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, other I've seen other places also attempt it or do those kinds of things, but well, actually, when you were talking, I was thinking about like how you've been in management for so long. And I'm wondering, why didn't you stay a reporter? And why did you go into management instead? Natural progression. It's, and I was, I thought I was a pretty good reporter. I was a horrible anchor person. I couldn't ever call the names right. So I knew I wasn't going to make a career out of being an anchor person. But then I also, working inside of the newsroom, I began to see where the real decisions would come from. And I wanted the opportunity to be part of the decision makers. And the only way you can do that is to progress up the ranks and uh, convince somebody over you to hire you into that role. And so I was fortunate that I was one of the people who was able to do that. Well, you came up, you know, when broadcasting was huge. And what do you think about it now that, like, you know, social media is so big now? I think we have an even greater responsibility of being able to separate the fact from fiction because there's so many misconceptions that are put out there on social media, I think we have a responsibility to be fact checkers and to be able to still talk about things in a truthful way. It's easy for anybody to go out there and say, you know, George Moon uh, is a rapist and a murderer and blah, blah, blah. And they put that on social media. And this poor guy has no idea, no clue why he's being labeled that way. But once it gets out there, it is hard to put the genie back in the bottle. Well, we can't take that stuff as fact. We have to go into our own investigations because you are ruining potentially a person's life 
And I think social media unchecked can be a dangerous thing. Yeah, so how does, one, how does a person go about fact-checking in an effective way? Oh, that's, a, that's easy. You make phone calls. You look up your data. You cross-check it by having multiple sources. So we just don't take one person's word. That's not smart. I don't necessarily care about being first, but I do care about being right. So I'd rather put it out there right than rush to judgment and just put something out there that's wrong. So what do you do if somebody puts something out there that, you know, from your station, for instance, and it's not necessarily, or have you had instances where it hasn't really been vetted as much? Uh, in the, it, where I am now, no, that hasn't happened yet. And, but in, over my career, absolutely it's happened. When you find out you're wrong, say to the world you're wrong. We're not perfect. Hey, that was a, we want to make a retraction. We want to make a correction. People love it when you're honest. It's called honest anchor. Just tell the truth. And I think people will forgive you for getting it wrong if you say you're wrong. I don't think they're going to forgive you if you try to hide that fact, cover it up, or not admit your mistakes. And then how do you make sure a story, when you're, when you're putting your stories on, that it doesn't sound biased, that it sounds it's just like straight, you know, that there, you can't tell what the view is. How do you guys make sure? Tell both sides and leave out your opinion. Simple as that. We don't employ opinion hosts. We employ journalists. And we jealously protect the First Amendment. That's what we do. Did you guys have training also? I mean, at the station now, but even in the past, um, have you had... Did you make sure that people did that or did you wait until somebody put out a story or? Well, no, training, training is ongoing. I mean, this is a school you never graduate from. It's the school of life. And yes, the more experience you get at doing it, of course, the easier it may become for you in some ways, but it's more difficult to make sure that you're growing the product. And so by the time you get hired into one of these jobs, hopefully you've gone through a lot of that training, the fundamental training. Now it's refining what we do to make sure that we are acceptable to our audience. Yeah. How, also, what about the business of news? Like, how do you balance the business part with the news part? Fortunately, like what it's not my job. I'm a newsman. I leave sales to sales. But sales doesn't sell our core product. Now, let's not be disingenuous. This is called commercial broadcast. So, yeah, commercials are those necessary things to keep people like you and me working. But you don't sell your birthright to an advertiser because they are buying spots in your show. You still maintain that wall. So the sales is on one side, the journalism is on the other side, and then we try not to cross over that. Because I know somebody who was a, uh, they did news and they said one time that the station wanted them to do a story that was basically making the sponsor look good in a certain way. It was sort of like a favor to the sponsor. Do you ever run across anything like that? I have in the past. And unfortunately, I've had some general managers who, when I would take that to them, uh, one in particular walked away from one of the station's largest clients because of an unfavorable story we did on that client. And so we lost a lot of money. But he stood by his news department and its ability to do that. In another situation, 
the owner had multiple businesses and one of the larger, not the television station, but one of his other businesses, they canceled their contracts because of an investigation that we did. That owner stood by the news department. So there's some good, decent, honest ownership groups out there that will never allow that to happen. But you know, again, it's not a perfect system. And sometimes things do slip by, but when they do, we should be caught on it and we have to make corrections. Yeah, so let's say somebody's faced with something like that, like some kind of ethical situation, and they might lose their job if they speak up. They know that they might lose their job if they speak up. What should they do? How does somebody get through that? We have decisions to make as adults, don't we? The advice I would give to a person, they would have to weigh the consequences either way. And if they weigh those consequences and they make the decision, then make the decision based on your core belief system and do what you feel is right. Simple as that. And then also for the people who um, they're trying to make it in the business, like what kind of advice do you have? Stay true to yourself. Stay, stay true rather, uh, stay true rather to the First Amendment. Learn all you can. Every bad experience you have is still a good teaching moment. Every good experience you have is a good teaching moment. Remember those people who smile in your face and tell you how great you are, well, those may not be your, your best consorts. Those people in the newsroom who can critique your work strongly, you may think it's harsh, but if you learn from it, may help your career grow and you could have a long life in this business. And then what if somebody encounters prejudice? How do they get through that? Either face it head on, but I'm, I'm a big dialogue person. Some of the people that I've worked with in my life, I know darn well, they were some of the biggest racists in life. Absolutely. But by the same token, they were good journalists. It didn't bleed over into their reports. We're people, we have our beliefs. You believe what you believe, I believe what I believe. And that's your right. But if you're gonna report it, you have an obligation to tell the truth, to tell it fairly and present it. And I've only known maybe one or two people in my 50 years that, that blurred the line and they're not in the business anymore. But okay, but if you're working with somebody, you know, as if in the past, you know, you're working with somebody and you knew they were racist, how did you keep your head together? Like, how did you maintain your composure or how did you deal with that? It says, I don't have to eat with you. I'm not married to you. We work together. As long as you respect my space, I respect your space. Let's get the job done. We don't have to talk religion or politics. We don't have to talk about what's happening in the street. Get the job done. Focus on the job, not all the rest of the stuff. Blurs, I, can't, I, I don't have time to get involved in all that when I'm on the job. The job is a job. I will do my job, you do your job. If your core beliefs are so strong that you can't work with me, that's your problem. But I'm not gonna quit my job. I'm not gonna run away because of your core belief. I still have to feed my family. Now, if you want to cross that line and get in my face, we don't have to talk about that. And there are mechanisms inside of the business to handle that. Okay, now another question I have, um, back to like all the places you've been, because I keep thinking that you've been around to so many places. Um, what was your favorite place to work in? Um, 
I have, that's a, that's a fair question, but it's a hard one to answer. I'm one of those guys and, and I've got the greatest wife on earth because she's put up with me moving her around all these years. And my kids grew up in many different places. We like to live in places that we'd like to vacation in, but never have enough time to spend there. So living in the Pacific Northwest when my kids was young was a real hoot. To be able to go out and watch the bears come down out of a mountain and watch salmon spawn and all that kind of stuff. You only see that on TV, but my kids lived it. They lived it. To be able to go into Canada and, 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 and go to Whistler Mountain and, and see the skiing and do all those crazy things. That was fun. Living in Baltimore with Fort McHenry there and the Chesapeake Bay and eating crabs and understanding how that all happens and was marvelous. Living in Syracuse and I found out that Syracuse is where the snow clouds go to die. I've never seen so much snow, but people don't stop living because it snows a lot. So that was great. And people would invite you into their homes because it was so cold and you would just do that. Living in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest again was wonderful. What a beautiful city with the Asian culture and with uh, the Norwegian culture and the mountains and all. Wonderful experience. So I guess you're getting the, the, the drift here. Everywhere I live is my favorite place while I'm there. I love this country. I love all the parts of it. It's been a lot of fun. So wherever my lovely wife is, well, that's home to me. Well, also, are the people really different in all these different places, Northwest, East, South, whatever? Oh, there are cultural differences. Absolutely. Very, very, very different. Very different. But there's still the core belief that America is America. And we're a big old country, but we're one people, really. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.